Good morning and welcome to East River Church once again. My name is Michael Foster. I am one of the pastors here. Happy to have you. We are going through the epistle of 1 John. So if anyone ever wants you to name four books of the Bible as quick as possible, just say John, right? Because there's John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're in chapter 2. I'm actually just going to do verses 1 and 2 today, and we'll catch up somehow next week. 1st John chapter 2. Verses 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this encouraging word, that you have secured salvation for us and that you will save your people, and we can have absolute confidence of that. Bless us now as we study it and meditate on it. In your son's name, amen. Amen. So as I said last week, the book of 1 John is polemical. This means that John, in his writing, undermines and contradicts the dangerous doctrines of false teachers. These false teachers who once apparently belonged to the church, as we'll see, or these churches uh, that he's writing to, now uh, saw uh, themselves as men who through special knowledge had become spiritual elite. But they believed and taught lies. For example, they denied that Christ was the Messiah come in the flesh. They denied both Christ's full humanity and his full deity. These false doctrines weren't without ethical or moral consequences. They never are uh, bad doctrine ultimately leads to uh, bad living. And that was true here. They denied that they had sin, or perhaps more often they minimized their sin and need for a savior. They downplayed it. And this self-centeredness shows or showed in that these men lacked love for the brethren, but they did love the things of the passing world. So in this epistle, John is confronting these men. But again, as I said last week, this book is primarily pastoral. He is a pastor, a shepherd, who's writing to Christians he deeply loves. His motivation isn't just to call out and fight with false teachers. He loves the sheep. He loves people. If you aren't a people person, you aren't called to ministry. I can promise you that. Uh, you know, uh, loving people can take many shapes, and it can include many different uh, temperaments. But I've known quite a few young men who think uh, they're called to the ministry because they like to talk, right? They like to hear their own voice. They, they like, and, then, and perhaps they do care about the truth, and they really want to teach that. But the ministry, the ministry is all about people. So you got to be not just people of the book, uh, but people of the a person of the church. you got to love them. You have to love the Word of God and the people of God, and John does. You look at uh, the first part of verse 1, he says, my children, my little children, or elsewhere, my dear children. John, famously, is the last of the apostles to die, and his gospel and three epistles were written when he was much older. Uh, so John's calling them in children, uh, calling them children in part uh, because of his age. Twenty-somethings uh, look like kind of like kids to me. They look, you look very young. Uh, and that's not meant to be condescending. You're just very fresh in life, right? 
I always joke with Emily, like, when I was young and full of life, when I look back. Uh, one of our former members, uh, Ovid Need, he was 80, and uh, I'm in my mid-40s. I'll turn 44, I think, next Friday, whenever the 8th is. Uh, and I looked like a young into him. And relatively speaking, I was. But I remember him just telling me that life's like this. Life moves so fast. But this, just, this isn't just about age. It's about the nature of their relationship. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, For though you have countless guides or instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In part, what he means there is that it's literally through him the gospel message was brought to them. Therefore, they heard that message and were brought into the church through his, his work as a pastor. But he also means that he's not there just to give them teaching and information and data and content. He actually loves them. He cares about them. Pastors are to be fatherly. Uh, they care for their people in a way uh, similar to how a father cares for their own children. It's not identical. It's similar. So pa- fathers are pastorly, right? And pastors are fatherly, but they're, they're overlapping but distinct. And a father wants more than anything to see their children to do well, Right? You can all say amen to that, I think so. I know that's what I want. And uh, third John, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is the heart of John. It is the heart of a pastor that his church members not only know the truth, but walk in it. And that you, can, you tend to be in churches. Churches are just given to ditches, aren't they? from a pendulum that swings one way to another. I've been to churches that are all um, about practicality, all about lifestyle. Um, that's a strength of many larger mega churches, like four ways to do this, five ways to do that. Uh, but it's not rooted in doctrine or teaching. And I've been to more than my fair share, this is kind of the world I come from, where they love abstract and theoretical principles and very complicated things and sermons that have points with subpoints and subpoints that have even more subpoints, right? Turtles all the way down. And so, uh, but it's, it's got to be both, right? It's got to be truth and walk in it. You got to know the truth and actually want to live it. And that is the heart of a pastor. Then if you look in the second part of verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In the last chapter, he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us or forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. While this is true, it doesn't mean that we should have a low view of sin, that we should be okay with sin because after all, we can just be forgiven. And, uh, you know, Paul says, uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? Hey, when we sin, it's just yet another opportunity for God to show how gracious he is, right? That's a weird way uh, that our own sin can twist truth. Quite the opposite. The graciousness of God should motivate us to holy living. Part of the point of this epistle is to encourage Christians to walk their talk. The false teachers claim to be spiritual elite. But they were given to sin. John says, I'm writing so that you may not sin. That's the goal. The verse, uh, the last part of this verse. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. While true Christians aren't dominated by sin or practice sin as a way of life, we do have remaining corruption and continue to struggle with sin in this life. 
The readers of this would hear John say that you may not sin and immediately think what everyone would think. But what if I do sin? I think I've sinned like 20 times today that I know of. Well, God has graciously made a provision for the restoration of the believer. If you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Now, what does the word advocate mean here? Sometimes the word uh, means something like a defense attorney. They, they, uh, they advocate before a judge for a client, right? They defend him, and that's a pretty rare usage in Scripture. More common is the idea of a com- comforter. The Holy Spirit is repeatedly referred to as an advocate or a comforter in the same sense that the word is being used here. Uh, the advocate uh, is someone who comes to the assistance of another in need. So that's how it's like a lawyer, but they help them, they comfort them. And John Stott, he's got um, a, a really helpful commentary. Stott, you've got to be careful with. Stott's really good in like 98% of everything. But for some inexplicable reason, he ends up denying the doctrine of hell. Right? He ends up teaching annihilationism, which is the idea that the righteous live forever, but the unrighteous are extinguished. Right? It's a very strange thing, uh, but he's good in almost everywhere else. Uh, matter of fact, even his teaching here contradicts where he ends up landing. So I have to like put that little asterisk there. And that's one reason like I like old books. Right? Like We've seen what's happened. Right, they've, they've stood the test of time. Anyway, Stott writes this, and it's helpful. If we have an advocate in heaven, Christ has an advocate on earth. The Holy Spirit is Christ's advocate as the Lord Jesus is ours. But whereas the Holy Spirit pleads Christ's cause before a hostile world, Christ pleads our cause against our accuser, as in Satan, and to the Father who loves and forgives his children. He's not now to be regarded as our judge, The person who believes in Christ already has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Once a sinner has been justified by God, his judge, he has entered the family of God and become related to God as if father, he is his father. If he should sin, he does not need another justification from the divine judge. He is a child of God. He needs the Father's forgiveness. This is assured to him through the advocacy of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. Your place before God has been secured by God through Christ. Christ always pleads your uh, cause before the Father who loves you, and he defends you against the enemy, the devil, right? The accuser of the brethren. So when you sin, repent, be bold. Repent because Jesus is your advocate and his throne of judgment for you has become a throne of grace. So you should approach it. You should approach it with boldness. As Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we're not only saved by Christ, but Christ continually is interceding for us as we travel through this life. Look at that phrase, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Each part of this is important. Our advocate before the Father is Jesus. That is to say, he is the son of Mary. He is the incarnated word of God. He's 100% human. They had a lot of trouble with this back then, the Gnostics. Matter of fact, uh, some Islamic teachers will teach that uh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. 
right? There's a, there's a problem that uh, false religions and cults always have with the cross. They either don't want to believe that Jesus is really a human, he's like a ghost, or he has the appearance of being uh, human, but really is just a spirit, uh, or uh, he <clears throat> became the Son of God. You'll hear that taught sometimes at his baptism. That's when he becomes the Christ, or he became human at another point. They're always attacking one or the other, but uh, this matters big time. Like, it is heresy. Heresy is a damning belief. To believe, to reject this truth is to embrace falsehood. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So sin came into the world through one man, Adam, right? And then it spread to everyone. That's how we got to the situation we find ourselves. Then Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Only a man could atone for the sins of mankind. It had to be a human. We needed a second Adam to undo and make right the sin and rebellion of the first Adam. We needed someone who would keep the covenant of God perfectly, fulfilling the law in every way without any blemish. But all mankind fell into sin, right? Therefore, it's important that it is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah who is without sin. Peter says he is the lamb without blemish. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says he made him who knew no sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he's Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? And he has secured our relationship with God and our continued fellowship uh, with God because of the righteousness of Christ alone. He is righteous. Everything about him is right, You are saved by the keeping of the law, by Jesus's perfect keeping of the law, right? It must be kept. It must be honored. You must be holy. And we're not holy. Who can ascend to the mountain? What does Psalm say? Right? Clean hands, pure heart. Is that you? Who can ascend to the mountain? Jesus. He's the one with clean hands and a pure heart. Only one. Then you have verse 2 here. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Highlight of my life, I once played a game of Scrabble where I did, in fact, spell propitiation. I didn't win the game, which seems impossible to me, but it was awesome. The word propitiation is a unique word. In ancient literature, it refers to the appeasing or satisfying of an angry god with a sacrifice or offering. Often these gods uh, were petty gods who acted like spoiled brats with bad tempers. Think of the many stories from Greek mythology. If you did anything to make them mad, you'd have to find a way to get back on their good side, to appease them. Now, Jesus is our propitiation. And there is some connections to that ancient use of the word uh, propitiation, but there's some differences that we need to note, some major uh, in a biblical understanding of propitiation. First off, God isn't a pagan, uh, petty deity. His anger isn't because he is moody or insecure or angry or has boundary issues. 
God's anger and wrath are because of God's holiness and justice. The ledgers must be balanced. Debts must be paid. Justice must be done. If God doesn't punish sin, he is no different than a judge or a cop that lets crimes go unpunished. He is corrupt. God, to be holy, must punish sin. It is necessitated by his very nature. Second, in pagan propitiation, the onus is on the human to initiate the offering or sacrifice. So it really is closer to a bribe, to to buying the deity off. But in scripture, it is God who initiates. It is God who is both the just and the justifier. You'll find that phrase in Romans. He is just in that he punishes sin. Right? Sin, all sin will be punished. It all will be dealt with. But he also justifies through the finished work of Christ. So this entire plan of atonement, of redemption, is a divine plan. It wasn't because, oh, God, help us. He's like, I guess we'll help you. Right? It, it's always been part of his uh, will that this would happen. That's why Stott defines propitiation as an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And why do you die and go to hell? Because you sin. That's why, right? God sends you there. If that's where you go, God is the one doing it. It's a wrathful, holy God that is punishing you. It's not like I grew up in charismatic circles. I became a Christian when I was 17. And I've seen people bark and roll around like dog and get, you know, all this stuff. But even more dangerous than that, actually, even more dangerous than that is often they, they presented salvation as if it was a battle between really Jesus and Satan, right? And Satan's the person that sent you to hell. Well, that's where Satan's going. Satan will experience eternal punishment. It is God's holiness that requires that sin must be punished. So, by the love of God, through the gift of God. Propitiation is a consequence of the work of the atonement. Now, atonement means what it sounds like at one mint. Through Christ, Jesus reconciles us with the Father. On the cross, Christ uh, accomplished a bunch of different things. Here's a few of them. Um, expiation. That's the removal of our sin and guilt. Second, propitiation, what we're talking about, the removal of God's wrath. Reconciliation, the removal of our alienation from God. So God now uh, looks on us. I always think about this when we do uh, the benediction from uh, number six. His countenance shines upon us, right? So that's God looking at you and smiling at you and loving you. That's a key, that's one of the reminders that you should get from that every time is that God loves me. Like a parent shines when his his child does something right. So his countenance is like a smile. So God, we're not alienated from him anymore, quite the opposite, we are reconciled. And then redemption, that's our deliverance from our captivity through the payment of a price. These are but a few of the riches that we have in and through our Lord and Savior. But our eye this morning is on propitiation. Propitiation comes up again in 1 John 4.10. There John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There, right, in that verse, we see the cause or motive of propitiation. It is the unconditional, 
unmerited love of God. That's why there's a propitiation, because of God's love. And that's why if you don't have love, what can you know of God? Again, this is him poking at these false teachers. It's not because of anything we've done. We don't earn this. It's a gift. We, don't lo- we love him because he first loved us. We'll come up in this book. The question isn't why bad things happen to good people. That's not the mystery of this life. But why does anything good, especially salvation, come to bad people? No one deserves goodness. God owes you nothing. God is no man's debtor, and we all were deep in debt. So why? Why does he do this? Because God is love. God is love. And in his mercy, he called his church to himself. That was the mission the father entrusted to the son. Now, we think of this verse as kind of a marriage verse, and it is that. But listen carefully to what's actually said in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus was not plan B. It was plan A. John in Revelation 13.8 refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slaughtered before the creation of the world. So it's, in other words, this, is, this has been the plan the entire time. And then uh, it says that uh, in a similar sense, Paul in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, and this, <laughs> these are some of those verses that I, I used to just not want to teach. I didn't know what to do with them. Right, Because the idea that God chooses people for salvation is a very offensive to our minds. But I remember reading this, and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, there's no way around it. But listen. Listen to what it says. This is the word of God. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Well, he does that because, you know, because we're good people. I, I, I. Right? That's not what it says. Uh, What's because he saw us in the future now? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Just as God planned the atonement before the creation of the world, so he, says Paul, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So salvation is ultimately Trinitarian. The father decrees or decides or chooses, um, and, uh, and then the son, he secures the salvation, and the spirit applies it. Listen to First uh, Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. God's plan that he destined before all things for his church is that his wrath wouldn't rest on us, but that we, through our propitiation, would obtain salvation. 
And that brings me back to 1 John uh, 4.10. Note it says, as in the Father, uh, or note as it says, that the Father sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not a, right, but the propitiation. And that's key. Christ is our propitiation. He's not our propitiator. That's how some people read it. In other words, God didn't just make salvation possible through the work of Christ. Christ actually accomplished it. Think about this. Can, can anyone frustrate the mission of God? Can anyone stop Christ from doing what he set out uh, to do? Jesus wasn't sent to lend us a hand to be the sinner's little helper. He was sent to save us. He didn't come to provide glasses for nearsighted people. He came to give sight to the blind. He didn't come to offer a wheelchair to the lame. He said to the paralytic, rise up and walk. He didn't uh, get just most of the stains out of our robes. He washed them white as snow with his own blood. He didn't come to wounded people and offer bandages and anointments. He came to give life to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins and that life all the more abundantly. He didn't yell from the cross, it's kind of done. He breathed out with his last breath, it is finished. Christ didn't come to make salvation possible for people. He came to accomplish salvation, to secure it. He didn't fail in his mission. He can't fail in his mission. He is the king of kings. He's resurrected and ascended on high. But who? Who is this for? It can't be for everyone, this propitiation. If propitiation is truly universal, meaning it pays all debts for all people, then you will find yourself a universalist who rejects hell and eternal damnation. After all, why would anyone be punished for a debt that has already been paid? That's what we would call, in the, you know, in the legal word, I don't think this is actually, I don't know how much double jeopardy actually works, but it was a part of every 90s action movie I watched. But in a nutshell, double jeopardy, you can't be tried for the exact same crime using the exact same evidence both times, right? It's been dealt with. It's, it's, it's gone, right? But the, why are people in, like, experiencing damnation then? They are. John says in John three thirty six, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. We say amen. But he goes on, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If propitiation is a removal of wrath, why does the wrath of God abide on him? The abiding wrath of God will be on unbelievers for every one of their evil deeds. So the atonement is for the church. That's what it says in Ephesians 5. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what it says. And it's made all the more clear in even more inconvenient verses, right? Acts 13, 48. I remember reading this and saying, well, that's something. And <laughs> just not talking about it for a couple of years. And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, right, or the people were being saved, they began to rejoice and glorify in the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Based on this unconditional choice, God destined some to be saved by Jesus' work on the cross. Sometimes this is called limited atonement, right? That's like net neutrality. Like that's, 
It's not, it's not a helpful phrase. I don't like it at all. I prefer definite atonement. You sometimes call it particular redemption. But I like definite because God's plan is definite. And the number of his people is known to him because he calls them to himself through the work of the Spirit. Therefore, it is definite. Think of the atonement as a bridge. And this is uh, my rift on something that's been Botner, B.B. Warfield, and uh, uh, Spurgeon all get credit for this. So who knows um, who came up with it. But if you think of atonement as a bridge... Uh, If it just makes salvation possible, it's like a wide bridge that reaches halfway across the chasm between God and man. So a lot of people can fit on the bridge, on the wideness of it, but they'll have to run in an attempt to jump across the rest of the chasm themselves, right? It doesn't reach all the way across. It's partial. It makes something potential. So it's actually, that's kind of a limited view if you think about it. If atonement secures salvation, then it might be a narrow bridge, but it spans the entire chasm, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ, right? So in that sense, it's unlimited. It reaches all the way across. It gets the whole thing done. But we got a bit of a dilemma, don't we? Because if you look at the very end, verse 2 He himself is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, this seems to imply universal propitiation because it says the whole world. But let me explain why that isn't what it appears. When we read the word world in Scripture, we tend to think in the very strict literal sense. We think of the word uh, world as everyone everywhere. That's how we think about it. But that simply cannot be true of the whole of Scripture. The word for world, cosmos, is used in several different ways throughout Scripture, even in John's Gospel. Consider how it's used later in this chapter. So just a few verses from here. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not for the Father, but it, or is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lust, but the one who does the will of, of God lives forever. Okay, one easy way you can deal with things like this is this, take your substitute definition. So let's say the word world means everyone everywhere. We'll just replace the word world here for everyone everywhere. Uh, everywhere. Let's see if it makes sense. Do not love everyone everywhere, nor the things in everyone everywhere. If anyone loves everyone everywhere, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in everyone everywhere, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from everyone everywhere. (laughs) Everyone everywhere is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Doesn't make much sense, does it? Do we really believe that everyone everywhere is passing away? All right. Another example would be at the end of John's Gospel, where we read the entire world is under the sway of the evil one, the wicked one. So everyone everywhere is under the sway of the evil one? What about those of us who've been saved? What about those of us who've been born again? Are we under the sway of the evil one? No, of course not. Right? It's called semantic range. Words can mean a whole lot of things, and you just have to read it in context. The word world can refer to the created realm, just stuff. It can refer to the known world. Like if you look in, I believe it's Colossians, it says the gospel's gone into the entire world. Really? Right? Like chief walks with feathers, heard the gospel, 
right, at that time? Is that what's going on? Uh, of course, it, it, it's talking about the known world, the Roman Empire. Uh, it can refer to the worldly system of sin. That's what's passing away, right? Everything that's against God, that evil, wicked culture that comes from sinful man, that's what it's referring to later in First uh, John. Or it can just refer to a whole lot of people of all different kinds. And that is how it's being used clearly in First John uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 2. Think of the immediate context. First, you have Jews who always look down on Gentiles. Oh, how the tables turned. <laughs> anyway, uh, second, you have the spiritual uh, elite false teachers. And th- they're thinking like they're, they're better than everybody, right? And the Jews are like, who could save Gentiles? This is a, this is a big part of the uh, right before the destruction of the temple. Like the, the tension between Jews and Gentiles, even inside the Christian church, remains quite uh, intense. So John is saying that salvation is for every type of person. Poor, rich, male, female, Jew, Gentile, this nation, that nation. Right? It's not just about national Israel. It's used to refer to every tribe, tongue, every sex, every type of person. It doesn't mean everyone everywhere. Think about, like, all right, let's say uh, Claremont County Fair it, we got to make it better than Brown County Fair somehow. It's just a goal we have to have as a church. But anyway, let's let's pretend like we all enjoy going there. Um, so, like, if we go to Claremont County Fair and like you just see one church member after another, right? Let's say you see like 25, 30 church members, and you say, "Man, the whole church came to the fair tonight," right? What you're saying is, I just saw a ton of people. Right? The whole t- town came out to greet, greet the president when he visited. Oh no, there was that one lady in that house. Liar, liar. Whole means whole, right? Like, that's not how language works, man. That's not, no one talks that way. Right? Scripture certainly doesn't work that way. You gotta look at the context. So when, what we're talking about is a, a whole lot of people are going to get saved. A lot. We, we all think like, like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He could. It could also go on several more thousand years, guys. Right? And a lot, you know, people are having lots of babies. Like, since I was, I, I feel like we're at 9 billion now. I can't remember. I just remember once upon a time we're at 7 billion. Right? We've increased in the number of people on this planet, the number of opportunities for people uh, to get saved. So a lot of times people hear this and think, oh, just a handful of people are going to be in heaven. The multitudes. The multitudes will be in heaven. When they sing, when they sing the, those songs to glorify God, it'll be like, the, it'll be incredible, right? It's going to be amazing. Listen to the language used by John in his gospel in uh, chapter 11. I think this is the sense of what's going on here. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Then John, uh, commenting on this, says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that uh, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Again, who did he die for? The children of God scattered abroad. Those children are called out through faithful preaching of the gospel. That's God determines the ends and the means how these things are done. 
I know a lot of people struggle with doctrines like this, but you're just going to have to get over it. You're just going to have to get over it. You're going to have to decide if you get to edit the Bible or not. And, and so a lot of the best theology is just very honest and descriptive. And we, we're not able to figure out how everything works. So take the Trinity, right? It's God the Father, God the Son, right? God the Holy Spirit, uh, one being, three persons, all equal, right? It's not multiple gods. It's not tritheism, uh, but it's not Sabellianism. There's an ism for you. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the persons aren't just personas, like masks that the Trinity uh, wears. But how does that work out? It gets really hard to explain, like the uh, inner workings of the Trinity. So what we do is we describe what we see in Scripture, and we say, yeah, man, it's pretty wild stuff. <laughs> That's where you just end sometimes. So you are responsible. God is sovereign. There's no way around that. You're responsible. God is sovereign. The things that happen, happen according to his plan. Scripture says that over and over and over and over again. God is completely sovereign. And the first step is like, you know, Scripture says that I believe it. And it's not that that settles it. It's that I'm going to ponder on it. Right? Scripture says it. I believe it. I'm going to ponder on it. And over time, these things make more and more sense. And then you start to see things all throughout Scripture that you'd never seen before. It was like right in front of you the entire time. You just hadn't seen it. And so what we have to do when we come to things like this, some people get really pugnacious, right? But what we can't do is we can't act like Scripture is not clear. Now, there are two practical benefits when you realize this. One is confidence in Christ. He is your actual Savior. Like, he really did secure salvation for you, right? He has saved you. He is saving you. He will save you. Like, the whole thing's been secured and accomplished. We don't get right with God through penance, right? We don't get right with God by mixing our good works in there. No, we have actually been saved, and we're being transformed to become more like him. But that transformation is a result of the work of God, and it's not a cause of the work of God. In other words, by being good or doing something, we don't obligate God to save us. God's not obligated to save anyone. So when you realize like, hey man, it really is all God, you can just, (sighs) you don't have to be worried. People that aren't worried just don't know themselves well enough. When you start to study scripture and see how sinful sinfulness is, or how sinful sin is, Right? How lawlessness, how, how breaking the law is lawlessness and how it spreads and how it's not just an issue of overt actions, but actually attitudes. When you start to see yourself, you, you can really lose heart. And that's why it says, if you sin, if you sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. He's our propitiation. He has satisfied wrath. Wrath is no longer on you. You're no longer an object of wrath, but an object of God's grace. The other thing it does is that for me, um, it emboldens me to preach evangelism because I know that God works through his word. He's got a plan. He gave Jesus a mission and Jesus accomplished it. And Jesus then gave us a mission and said, preach the word, right? Make disciples. And as we preach that word out there, God, God calls people to himself. I, I, often people ask me, they used to ask me this a lot, because I was an atheist, what convinced you? Uh, of the truth of scripture. Here's the straight truth. A guy preached the gospel and then I just was convicted and I got saved. 
That was it. There was no arguments. It was just the preaching of the word of God. That is how powerful it is. What if they don't believe in God? Well, I'll tell you what, if a schizophrenic tells you he doesn't believe you in a knife and you shank him, he's going to bleed. It's the word of God. It doesn't matter what they say they believe. It's real. It's powerful. It accomplishes the work for which it's been sent. So preach with confidence and know that God will call his people to them. Matthew Henry ends uh, his thoughts on this passage this way. All men in every land and through successive generations are invited to come to God through this all-sufficient atonement. And by this new living way, and by this new living way, the gospel, when rightly understood and received, sets the heart against all sin and stops the allowed practice of it. At the same time, it gives blessed relief to the wounded conscience of those who have sinned. I pray that will be uh, the result of this. If you have a wounded conscience from your sin, that this would bring you relief and that you would look onto Jesus and thank him for all that he's accomplished for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, We thank you that though parts of it can be a bit confounding and confusing, we know you are good and we trust you. And we thank you, Lord, that you love, that you of your own will uh, have... uh, snatched us out of this world, and now we are in your hands, and no one can snatch us out of your hand, that you will continue the work that you started in us. So, Lord, we pray that as you've given this wonderful provision through your son, our advocate, our intercessory uh, high priest, that even now as we come to the supper, we would come in full confidence of, of our place before you, Lord. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.